All right, let's turn in our Bibles this evening once again back to the book of Psalms, and Psalm 145 is where we pick up this evening. Psalm 145, you'll notice here, tells us it's a praise of David, and Psalm 145 actually ends up being uh, the last psalm, at least, that we have identified as being from David. So this is David's uh, final song. It's his sort of uh, swan song. It's his signing off, if you would. We can't be certain. The remaining psalms, the last five, do not tell us uh, who the author is. David has given to us Uh, the majority of the Psalms from a human authorship standpoint. And remember, David was really most, uh, if you want to say, uh, I guess proud, uh, if you want to use that term, of the fact that above all else that God privileged him to, as he describes himself at the end of his writing in Samuel, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David had a lot of accomplishments. I mean, David was known after man, after God's own heart. David was an incredible king. Uh, David was a giant slayer. I mean, there were things that David could have taken to himself, but the thing that he appreciated most was that he was able to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. Uh, And David was a worshiper of God. He loved the Lord. He loved thinking upon the Lord, meditating upon the greatness of God, even from when he was a young teenage boy, it seems, out in the wilderness in the open country as a shepherd, just being out there pondering God, pondering the ways of God, just with a great love for the Lord before any public ministry or any way God ever used him. He just had a heart for the Lord. And not only did he, did he just love thinking about and pondering the, the goodness and the greatness of the Lord, he liked speaking about and expressing such things as well. And the Psalms gave him opportunity through poetry and song to do that. And You know, the reality is, if you think about David's ministry, David's ministry has had much more lasting impact as a psalmist than it ever did as a king of Israel. And after David failed, and we know David did fail greatly, um, he wasn't ever really as effective as a king much in any way as he was prior to his failing and his moral compromise. But David became, to my estimation, a much greater psalmist. And if you think about it, David's role as a king and as a warrior and a general, that served one generation in the present moment. But David's psalms that were spirit-inspired writings of the Lord have touched generation after generation after generation. I've had a much farther reach uh, beyond uh, David's days in the flesh. And You know, what a great reminder of just the reality that sometimes because God is such a redeemer and a restorer, uh, sometimes after failure and mistakes or disappointments or God bringing an end to one way that he was using us, God may be able to use us in a much greater extent in a different capacity if we just simply say yielded to the Lord. And because David stayed yielded to the Lord, uh, God maybe perhaps didn't use him in the same way as he once did as a king, but God to a much greater extent used him as a psalmist. And to me, I, I point that out because as we now come to this final psalm of David, I have to say this is probably one of David's greatest expressions of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, talking all about just the wonderful God that uh, he really is. It's just a praise of God's greatness 
And, and of course, it's very fitting that David, who was just this worshiper heart, was the one who gives to us this psalm. Notice with me here in verse 1, David says, I will extol you, which means to exalt or to honor, uh, to give great honor to. I will extol you and lift you up, my God, O King. So he recognized that God was the king over all, but David said, you are my God, not just you are God, you're my God, that personal relationship. And he says, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And, and the psalm really just expands upon that very concept, the greatness of the Lord, who's greatly to be praised, uh, and you notice David begins this psalm again here in our first few verses. Four different times we see that statement there, those two words put together, verse 1 and 2, I will. In other words, David is reminding us of this conscious decision to praise God, that he made a choice. It was a, a decision, a, an act of his will that he exercised to praise God, to bless God, to worship God. And again, that's so important because here is David. And again, if there's anybody in the word of God that beyond being a man after God's own heart, we could, as I said, just kind of give this uh, uh, title to or admiration towards that, man, David was just a worshiper. This guy loved to worship God. He just had a heart of worship but yet David always seems to articulate these phrases, I will do this, I will do this. In other words, just admitting the reality that it was a choice. David, David recognized that it's a conscious decision to worship God. It's a conscious decision to praise God, to sing to God, to express thanksgiving, to honor and to extol God. We can't make those decisions based off of how we feel or what our circumstances are. Because our moods can tend to go all over the map. I mean, our, 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 our thoughts, the way we feel mentally and emotionally, and sometimes, you know, how we're doing spiritually. We go through dry seasons or times maybe where our heart becomes cold or apathetic. But the important thing is to realize that despite how we feel, despite our mood, despite our current circumstances, that because of who God is, he's always worthy to be praised. And David here uses this psalm to describe this. In fact, uh, Hebrew uh, commentators say of Psalm 145 that this of the psalms in the practice of a Orthodox Jewish man was a psalm that was, was read over out loud twice every morning and once every evening. So, so they saw such value in this psalm, and I'll tell you, uh, might not be a bad idea for just sort of a, a daily medicine. If you want to take a spiritual supplement, just like we take our supplements and our vitamins and our medicines and these kind of things, you know, it really does a whole lot for your mood and your outlook and your attitude. I mean, this psalm, read it every morning, read it every night before you go to bed. Just the truths in it alone are very potent and very wonderful in a way that just help our focus to be correct, to think properly about God, and really to just, in a lot of ways, I think, readjust our attitudes sometimes that can get just really, uh, you just kind of out of whack because of just living in a fallen world and because we're human and we just 
You know, we're fractured human beings living in a broken world, dealing with the hassles and struggles of sin and so on and so forth. So David here, again, I will, I will. He says, I will extol you. He says, verse 1, I will bless your name. In fact, he says, verse 2, notice, every day I will bless you. Every day. So David, again, every day I will. In other words, it does not matter what kind of day I'm having. It does not matter what kind of day you're dealing with. Every day we should still bless God. There are reasons that we have to bless God, even if it's not for what's going on in our life. We have reasons to bless God simply because of who he is. David's going to say later in the verse, because he's gracious and full of compassion, and he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and he's good to all, and he takes care of us, and he provides for us. And again, there are always reasons that we can find to bless God, and it does something really good to bless God every day, to take some part of our day to just express gratitude and appreciation to bless the Lord. Often we ask, we want God to bless us, but we should realize there are many, many more reasons for us to bless God because he is worthy of that gratitude and that appreciation. And I'll tell you, to, to do such, it really helps us to kind of just keep ourselves from kind of, you know, shrinking down into the very unhealthy thing, which is just to be complaining and have this, you know, discontentment take over us and frustration. I mean, it comes very naturally for me, I know anyway, to want to find reasons to complain or be angry or upset or woe is me. And But to, to begin to just bless God with our words in an intentional way, it does something to just really put our mindset in the right place. It can change our attitude. So David says, Lord, Every day I will bless you. And notice as he talks about blessing God and praising God. He also says, verse 1 and 2, repetitively, he says, I'll bless your name. And as well, verse 2, I will praise your name. And notice he says twice, forever and ever. In other words, David says, I'm going to do it every day now while I'm in this body, while I'm living my earthly existence. But because you, O oh God, are an eternal king, I realize that one of the things that I will do forever and ever and ever and ever and ever is praise God. There are a lot of things that we do now on earth we won't do anymore when we get to heaven. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? I'll never dump the trash again. I will never mow my lawn again, forever and ever. That's what people in hell will probably be doing, mowing lawns in this 90-degree weather with humidity forever, ever. And I'm sure there's a few shopping malls. People will be forced to shop down there. And I mean, just all these things, right, that we hate and despise. There are a lot of things on this earth that we do now that we won't do forever and ever. There are things that we like to do that are, you know, decent, good, and reasonable things that we just, we won't do forever and ever. I'm not going to have a job in heaven anymore because Jesus, the master teacher, the very word of God incarnate will be the one saying, let me tell you what John 3.16 really means. I know you've heard sermons and you've read it, but, but let me tell you, let me just tell you now that you have an eternal body and you have an eternal mindset, let me really explain to you. And Jesus is going to be teaching us and speaking to us and explaining and revealing things to us continuously. The Bible tells us in this New Testament 
that, that he, we're going to continue to learn of his goodness and kindness to see the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 2 says, for all of eternity. He's going to continue to just keep revealing more and more. We'll be learning forever and ever. Uh, and, and one of the things that, of course, because of these realities and because we're seeing the Lord, that's why one of the things we will do forever, ever is praise and worship God, which means it's something that we should really become very accustomed to. And we should really start to really enjoy doing and like doing, praising God, blessing God now, and doing it every day because you might as well practice because that's what one of your chief occupations is going to be. That is one of the main pastimes of heaven, worship. And it's one of the best ways, I would venture to say, to pass time while we're living on this rotten earth still, is to pass time by blessing his name and worshiping him, and it makes it much more tolerable to praise and bless him now because it's what we will do forever and ever. And David says, verse 3, because great is the Lord. I mean, those four words alone, great is the Lord. Not a whole lot of things we can say that about. But he says, the Lord is great. And that Hebrew term there, great is the Lord, it's a term that means to be large in size. It's a term in the language that meant to be something that was highly valued or very important. So David, in, the, in a sense, the Hebrew language, as he says, great is the Lord, he's saying magnificent and awesome. Mighty and large is the Lord. He's saying highly valuable is the Lord. Very important is the Lord. And therefore, again, verse 3, he emphasizes in light of that, greatly to be praised because he is so awesome because he is so valuable because he is so important that's the reason why he is so greatly to be praised that's why it's such a big deal to praise him that's why it's so important to worship him because of who he is in his person and as he speaks of the greatness of god he concludes verse three by saying and his greatness is unsearchable the language indicates of his greatness, there is no full examination. Of his greatness, there is no full examination. The idea is that we can continue to try and search out, investigate the greatness of God for our entire life. If we had the time, we could spend every waking moment of every day, big chunks of our day for year after year after year until we grow old as a Christian, if we don't get raptured and we go home to be with the Lord. And we will never exhaust learning everything there is to learn about the greatness of God, the magnificence of God, all of his incredible ways and who he is in his person. We can keep exploring more and more of God and you'll never exhaust getting to know God fully. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because there are a lot of things that eventually, you know, we, we study them, study them, and we just, there's nothing more to learn about it. That will never happen with God. Relationship with God never has to become something where I just, I'm getting bored with God. Something's wrong. You can never get bored with God. There's always something new about God to learn, to discover. I mean, you know, I, I just passed my 30-year birthday as a Christian, and, you know, I've realized 30 years into my walk with the Lord and studying the Word of God as not only a, a Christian, but on top of that as a calling, I realized that there's a whole lot more that I don't know now that I thought I knew earlier on. 
and passages of scripture and things that begin to open up and comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. And as you walk with the Lord, you see new facets of his character and he reveals aspects of his ways and you sense him and his presence and experiences because of what you go through at different seasons of your life. And you realize, man, just the Lord, his greatness, it's unsearchable. There's always more to discover about him, which keeps life interesting in a walk and relationship with the Lord. I, mean, I think of Paul's words as he concluded uh, the 11th chapter of, of Romans, where Paul declares this at the end of Romans 11 regarding how great God is. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So again, we can continue to seek God, to get to know God, and there's always more to learn about him, to see about him, to continue for him to reveal more and more to us. So David says, man, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, because his greatness there's no full examination of it. It's unsearchable. There's so much more of him to learn and to discover continually, to be astonished by God's greatness. He says, verse 4, And one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That is, the, the powerful acts of God, the, the, the powerful works and ways in which God has acted and he says, notice, one generation should praise God for those things. And the idea is praise and declare. The idea is bragging upon God. One generation should do such to the other. Talking about the great works of God, the mighty acts of God. Now, I think, honestly, that works really both ways. I think the older generation, and each generation has a generation older than it, and I, and I think an older generation should be declaring and praising the works of God to the younger generation, describing through testimony the ways that God has worked, the ways they've seen God do things in their life, telling them what they've you know, experience God do in their life, God, times when God answered a prayer or God came through and provided in a miraculous way or the faithfulness of God that, you know, what God's done in their life from who they were at one point to where they're at now or maybe powerful acts of God, things he set them free from and just de declaring by testimony and sharing experience, one generation talking about the greatness and faithfulness and the love and and everything about God to the next generation, to stir the hearts of the next generation to want to serve God, to want to believe God for their situation and their life and their walk, and to be investing those things to stir faith in the younger generation. But I also do believe, by the same token, that the younger generation should be doing the same for the older generation. Because even as the older generation can speak about the wonderful things they've seen God do over their lives, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years walking with the Lord and all the mighty things they've seen God do as they've served him and known him and walked with him, the younger generation should see present, current mighty acts of God. And sometimes they should be declaring and praising the mighty works of God to the older generation to say, hey, guess what God's doing? Can we share with you what God's been doing among our school or among our friends and, and, and stirring the older generation to get them to realize, look, 
Don't become apathetic and fall asleep at the wheel. God's still working. And I think it's a good thing when the younger generation stirs up excitement and enthusiasm for the older generation of the ways that God is working currently in their lives and among the perhaps the, the next generation. And so one generation, the older to the younger, the younger to the older, praising God, talking about the mighty ways in which God is working. And David says on top of that, verse 5, and I will meditate. The idea is not just to think, but to, to deeply ponder, to take time to consider, to muse over. I will meditate, he says, on the glorious splendor God of your majesty. That is just you know, thinking about the, the, the majesty of God, just how awesome he is, the things about God that are just marvelous and just kind of mind-blowing, just who God is and his nature, his attributes, the ways that he works, just thinking upon that, just meditating upon it, being amazed by God, he says, just a, a good thing to do. And he says, and also I will meditate upon your wondrous works. That is what God's done, not just who he is, but what he's done. And we can do that both through scripture that is, reading the Old Testament as well as reading the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, you know, these historical books that record the works of God, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the, you know, the walls of Jericho, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being preserved through the fiery furnace, and, and the great exploits of what God did through Paul, and the incredible ministry of Jesus, and just you know, pondering and meditating upon the wondrous works of God. So we can do that through Scripture, and we should. As we're reading the Scripture, we shouldn't just read it for intellectual information. We should ponder and meditate. Wow, Lord, you, you, you did that. You did that. And I shared the story before when we were trying to uh, sell our home to move down here when we were you know, transitioning from pastoring the church in York to you know, come down here to, to, to you know, begin and, and to give ourselves fully to the work down here. One of the things included in that was selling our home uh, and to be able to be freed up to do that. And the market was not like what the current real estate market was. In fact, it was really stinky. It was like the worst time to sell a house, which wasn't making it easy not only to get a good value for your home, but just to get somebody to look at your home and, and to be able to unload your home in a real estate transaction. And so I've been praying, and we've been doing the house showing thing, and you know what that's like, right? The house showing thing where you make your house look like it really doesn't ever look because you live in it, so you, f you basically fake what your house looks like to get people to think their house will look like that if they move in and make them interested. And, you know, that's exhausting, and you're doing that when you're living there with, you know, five people. And, and, and so you're just doing that process and doing that process. And I remember I was reading through the, you know, uh, book of Joshua in my devotions, and, and I came across the passage where it describes when Joshua prayed. And remember, the sun stood still. And because, it, and it says, there's never been a day like it when God listened to a man. And God did this miraculous thing. He made the sun stand still. That messed up the whole planet. But God listened to the plea of one man, and I specifically remember, I, you know, it, was, it was a Wednesday night specifically, and somebody's coming to look at and, and I told my wife and the kids, it's like, just, just, just go to the church, I'll run home, I'll do the quick cleanup thing, and you know, get it ready so the realtor can come, and, and did that. And before I left, because I had read Joshua, that story in Joshua that morning, I got down on my face on our kitchen floor, and I said, Lord... You made the sun stand still. 
for Joshua. And I'm just one man, and all I'm asking, if you're calling us to do this, you got to sell this house. I'm tired. My wife's tired. Please, just sell the house. That night, we got an offer. And again, to me, those are the things of recognizing what God did in Scripture, meditating upon that, gave me the faith to pray in confidence, Lord, you haven't changed. Please, Lord. Lord, can you do something like that for me? In a much smaller way, Lord, can you just do something like that for me? And again, these are the things that we meditate from Scripture or we meditate on the awesome acts of God of what he's done in our own lives personally, we should ponder these things, think about these things. And not only that, verse six, he says, and men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. And he says, and I will, notice, decision. I'm gonna make sure I do that. I'm gonna declare your greatness and they shall utter the memory of your great goodness as well as sing of your righteousness. So not just thinking upon the great things that God has done or who God is in his greatness. But David says here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we should talk about those things. Men should speak about those things. We should share those things. You know, I think sometimes we only wait to hear things about God from times like a Bible study or listening to a Bible study or a, a teaching from behind a pulpit or a podcast. That we're, He just says here, not ministers, he says men. People, people who are living with God, walking with God, should be speaking of the might of his awesome acts in their life and declaring God's greatness. We all have stories, right? We all have testimonies, those ways when God did something for us in a small way or an incredible way, and he says we should talk about that stuff because truth of the matter is we speak about all kinds of other really worthless stuff right, in our jobs all day, in our households, in our neighborhoods, and we're, you know, frustrated with this and complaining about that, and we're talking about all these insignificant, ridiculous things, and what we really would benefit from a whole lot more, and God would get a lot more glory, is if we would do what verse 6 says, if we would speak about the mighty, awesome acts of God. If we would say, you know, let's just talk about God. Let's just talk about things that God's done in his word. Let's, and just how wonderful that is. You know, right now I'm reading through the book of Malachi in my, in my devotions just this morning. And there in Malachi chapter 3, it, it tells us how uh, God was listening to people as they were communicating uh, about him. I'm not going to try and paraphrase it, but I just read through it this morning. So I'll read it to you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written down before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. You know, what a beautiful thing. Those who knew the Lord were speaking about him to one another, having a conversation about God. And it says that when that was going on, the Hebrew literally is, is, is the ear of the Lord was raised, like how when an animal, right, we have a, a dog, and in an amazing way, they, they hear something, and their ear pricks up because they have an incredible acute ability to hear things that even we can't. And that's the idea there in the language is when people were speaking to one another about the Lord, it says the Lord heard, he listened. The idea is he tuned in. Wow, do you hear that? 
They're finally not talking about the economy. Listen to that. They're not talking about what's going on on social media. They're not talking about what's... Do you hear that? They're talking about me. They're talking about my son. They're talking about the things of God. And, and God listened and so excited, it says God wrote it down. He recorded it. Maybe it's because it doesn't happen often enough. Maybe they, and when it does, he's like, hey, record that. Here's another time. People are talking about me on earth. Instead of, and it says God wrote down a book of remembrance. It mattered to him. It, it was very meaningful. You know, it would be like the best way I can, to some degree, try and relate to that, like as a father, would be if on a rare occasion you happen to accidentally hear your kids talking about you in a positive way to someone else and how really good that feels to hear your kids saying good things about you. And imagine what that's like for God as a father. He hears us talking about him, and, and it just blesses his heart. So he says we should do this. We should be speaking to one another declaring the great goodness of God to each other in conversation. Verse 8, David says, For the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Much like the, the terms that we read when God revealed himself to Moses, when God passed by Moses and God declared of himself very similar things. And we see this repeated throughout the word of God as the, the nature of God is just described in some of these terms, that he's gracious, which means that God gives favor and kindness and blessing to those who do not deserve it. He's gracious. That's his nature, to be gracious. His nature is to be full of compassion, which means he's merciful and patient with our weakness, with our struggles, with our mistakes, with all of our flaws and, and inconsistencies. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, you know, get, get, you know, quickly frustrated with, he's full of compassion. He's very compassionate. He's very tender-hearted. He's moved by the pain in people. His heart is stirred with compassion when he sees people struggling. He's full of compassion. That's the nature of God. He's slow to anger. Aren't we glad about that? He's really, he takes him a long time to get angry. He's very slow to anger and great, the Bible says, not just merciful, great in mercy. The word there is literally unfailing love. It's that, that, that unfailing love, the loyal love of God. That is, he's merciful no matter what it takes. He just keeps patiently enduring, patiently enduring, and he keeps giving another merciful opportunity, another merciful opportunity. And he just keeps extending more and more mercy because he's great in mercy. That's the nature of our God. That's why his greatness is something to be talked about and celebrated and worshipped. He says, verse 9 of God, and the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. In other words, everything that God does, he does in a way where he mingles tender mercy into it. Even when God works, he doesn't work in a, in a kind of a harsh, abrupt way, but it says he's tender. He's merciful. God is sensitive. Even when he works, he tries to be sensitive and tender in the way that he goes about it, being merciful. And verse 9 declares that he's not just good to those who know him. He's good to, what does it say, to all. That is the universal goodness of God, that he's just a benevolent, kind, giving God in his nature to all. That is certainly to those of us who know him. The Bible says he withholds no good thing from those who fear him. 
But Jesus said that of the universal general goodness of God, that our Father in heaven makes the rain to come upon the just and the unjust. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. In other words, there's a part of God's nature that he's just good to people who are really nasty, but he's still good to them. I mean, that was our case. There were plenty of times, if you kind of go back in history, where God was being really good to us, and we didn't deserve, we weren't doing anything. We would have been at our worst, but God was still doing good things in our lives. He was still doing kind things and showing us generosity and goodness in our lives, and he, and he is. He's just That's his nature. His nature is to be good to all. And again, as, as we think of verse 8 and 9, these are things where we look at that and we say, okay, like father, like son, if that's your nature, God, and your divine nature is in me, then these are things that I should be seeking to walk out in my life and emulate as your spirit lives within me, that I would be more gracious, more full of compassion, that I would seek to be someone who's slow to anger and great in mercy. I'd be someone who's trying to just be good to all. The Bible tells us of Jesus himself in the book of Acts. It says that he went about doing good everywhere he went. It was one of the things that they noticed about Jesus. Just wherever the guy goes, he just keeps doing good stuff for people. He's just good to people. He just continues to spread goodness wherever he goes. He says, verse 10, And all your works, that is the works of God, shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. So notice, when God works, his very ways in which he works bring about praise towards him. You know, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus spoke to the man uh, who he, he said to him, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, well, wait a minute. And he said, well, what would be a greater miracle to say, get up and walk or that your sins are forgiven you? But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins, which you can't see me do. I say to you, and he said to the paralyzed man, also get up and walk. And it says he got up and walked and he started glorifying God. And then it says, and all the people who saw the miracle, the way that Jesus did a mighty work, they all glorified God. His works brought glory from people to him. And whenever God's works are happening, when God is working, guess what happens? His works bring praise to him, not to a person. When God is at work, a person is not glorified. A person is not exalted. A person is not even to some degree, you know, reverenced and magnified. It, when God is truly working, his works bring glory to God. His works bring glory to himself. And when the spirit of God is truly working in a pure and proper way, it will cause people to be excited about God, not excited about a man or a ministry or a movement or anything else, but just excited, celebrating, worshiping God, giving him glory because it's God that's working and all of his saints recognize it and just want to bless and glorify God because of it. He says, verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. So again, this is what the conversation was about, the glory of the kingdom of God, and there's much glory to his eternal kingdom, his coming kingdom, talking of God's power, just communicating about the mighty power of God, the ways he works in powerful ways, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. And then David says, verse 13, Lord, for your kingdom, notice, it's an everlasting kingdom. And David understood that because David had ruled over an earthly kingdom. 
for a time, for a season. But he said, Lord, your kingdom is very different. It's an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, your rulership and authority, it's going to endure throughout all generations. And David knew that's exactly what would happen as the messianic promise, remember, was fulfilled through his life. Because David, when he wanted to build a house for the Lord, instead the Lord said, David, I appreciate that desire's in your heart, and I'm going to reward you just for the desire. But David, as much as you want to do something for me, I'm such a God, I actually want to do something for you. And I care more about doing for you than what you want to do for me. So David, I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to give to you one from your throne who is going to sit on the throne forever, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting rulership. And of course, that was Jesus who came from the family line of David. And no doubt, David was very familiar. There's an earthly king, earthly kingdoms. Men rule for a time, but he says, Lord, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rulership will endure forever and ever through all generations. And he goes on to say of the Lord, verse 14, for Jehovah, the Lord Yahweh, upholds, notice, all who fall. So when people fall, when they fail, when, when they find themselves in a place where they've fallen down, they've tripped up, he says the Lord doesn't cast them aside. He upholds those who fall. The idea there is he stands in support of those who have fallen. And that's the nature of God. The Bible says that Jesus said, the bruised reed he doesn't break, the smoking flax he doesn't quench. You know, and when someone falls and they fall, no matter how flat on their face they fall, it is the nature of God to come alongside to try and stand them back up, to help them recover, to help them and, be, and support them. And that, that's the heart and the nature of God. And when we see someone fall, that should be our heart. Our heart should be, hey, what God wants to do is to, they've fallen, is to intervene and say, how can I help support them in that fallen condition so that they don't lay there and think, that's it, God's done with me, my life is over. And, you know, I just recently went out to lunch with an individual who got themselves into a real pickle, and that's an understatement to say a pickle, ruined, you know, Everything to do with their family life, quite a bit of pain and heartache, you know, entered into, you know, some infidelity, just, just a real, real mess to the degree where, quite honestly, pretty much nobody wants anything to do with them. And I, I asked him to go out to lunch, went out to lunch with them, and he said to me at the end of the lunch, he said, I don't care about anything really that much about what you said to me, but he said, what I do want to say is I, I want to thank you so much that not only you're willing to meet with me, but you met with me in public. And he said, most people won't even talk to me right now. And he said, not only were you willing to meet with me, you actually met with me in a public restaurant and sat across the table with you. You were willing to associate with me. And it meant so much to him. And I don't say that to be the hero of a story. I say that because, truth be told, I know it was the Lord that prompted my heart to say, ask him if he wants to go out to lunch. If I were to be very candid and honest in my own sinful flesh, I would have preferred not to do that. And there have been numerous times when that was the case. There have been numerous times over the years, you know, in pastoral ministry, you, you work with people and everything from, you know, dealing with a father who's abusing or molesting their kids. And I've, you know, taken people to, you know, the police station to report their, themselves for, you know, domestic violence. And then you go and visit them in prison afterwards. And it means the world to them because they realize 
that you're at least standing with them in their fallen condition. But see, that's what the Lord does. He stands with those who fall because he wants to help people stand back up, ultimately be able to course correct, to be forgiven, to experience grace and compassion. And, and the Lord upholds those who fall. And notice, and he raises up those who are bowed down. The word bowed down means to be under a heavy load. So those who are under a heavy load, they're weighed down, they're bowed down because they're under such a crushing weight, such heavy pressure, an incredible load, and they're ready to just crumble. It says the Lord raises people like that up, that as he comes in, he says, how can I help you bear that burden? Let me lift you. I don't, and Jesus said, right? Didn't Jesus say, Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm gentle and lowly. And he says, and you'll find rest for your soul. And again, Jesus wants to, to bear up that load. When people are just weighed down with the weight of the world, he wants to lift them up, to come alongside, to raise them up. And I believe he wants to use us as well to, to do the same as he's done that for us, to be his vessel to do that for others. Verse 15, he says, the eyes of all look expectantly to you, God. You give them their food in due season. The idea there is at the appointed time, that's when God's provision comes, at the appointed time, the due season, when it's necessary. God's never late. He says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire, notice, of every living thing. So this speaks of the provision of God. And David knew that very well, even as all of us come to grow and understand as we walk with God as our Father and understand Him as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. David said in Psalm 37, I was once young, now I'm old. And he said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and I've never seen God's children begging for bread. Because David knew this reality, Lord, the eyes of everyone must look expectantly to you. Why? Because God's the controller of all things. He's the possessor of all things. He's the one who has all resources. So he says the wise thing to do is to look expectantly to you, God, for whatever the need may be, because you give to all their food in due season. Whether it's an animal, whether it's a human, God's the one that supplies what is necessary. And notice he says, all God needs to do to provide when we look expectantly to him is to determine the right season, the due season, and that's key. Lord, why haven't you provided? Why haven't you provided? God will always provide in due season. At the right time when it is essential and it is needed, he will provide accordingly, just like God did for Abraham at the right time, Jehovah Jireh there in Genesis 22. And he says, all God has to do is open his hand. We're to look to the hand. All God's got to do is open his hand. Everything we need comes from the hand of God. And he says, God, if you open your hand, you can satisfy, meet the desire of, notice, every living thing. God's the ultimate provider. We look to him expectantly. For the Lord is righteous. In all his ways, that is, God always does what's right, and he's gracious in all his works. What a combination. Righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. When was that most perfectly fulfilled? Really, in Jesus, right? Jesus was completely righteous, sinless, and he represented the righteous, just nature of God and his holiness, but Jesus also brought grace through his works so that we could experience forgiveness and grace and salvation, and in Jesus was embodied 
the truth of God, the love of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, together with the graciousness of the work of God through his Son, given us grace. And he says, verse 13, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The idea is in sincerity, that if our heart is true and our heart is genuine and we're coming to God, notice it says, not only does he listen, but he's near. The idea is he draws near. The Bible says if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And the Lord is always near to those who sincerely call upon him in truth. That is, he listens. He gives attention to our situation and to our need. And notice verse 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him and also will hear their cry and save them or spare them from their situation. I love verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Those who fear God are those who respect God, want God's will, want God's way. They want to live under the authority of God. Lord, I fear you, and I fear doing anything that would not be what you want or what's best. And he says when a heart is in that condition, God is able to fulfill, notice, the desire of those who fear him. When you're living in right relationship with God, he will give you desires in your heart and he can fulfill your desires. There are genuine, good, righteous, godly desires that some of you may have in your heart tonight and be aware God can fulfill those desires. But look to him to fulfill those desires. Look to him to open his hand and satisfy that desire to bring into your life the fulfillment of that desire. For the Lord preserves, verse 20, all who love him. That's the protection now of God, the preservation of God to keep us, no matter what we're going through, he can uphold and sustain us as we love him. But all the wicked, he will destroy. The exact opposite. He just pulls back all of his goodness. He pulls back all of his preservation, and they end up really self-destructing and destroying their own lives. My mouth, David says, verse 21, shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. What a great final statement as David signs off in the psalm. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and he says, and my intention in that, the result is to prompt all flesh to praise his holy name. So David says, I'm going to praise the Lord because I want to get everybody praising the Lord. I want to inspire other people to praise the Lord. Let's quickly look at Psalm 146. You're going to notice there's some redundancy to the Psalm we just read, which is why we'll just go through it quickly. And this begins the last of the five Hallel Psalms, the praise the Lord Psalms, which we'll conclude in our study together. But Psalm 146, David said, or excuse me, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, or it's the Hebrew hallelujah, giving praise unto God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, from deep within, while I live, notice, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So the psalmist declaring, while I'm alive on this earth, while I have my being, the idea is in the flesh, I'm going to exercise the opportunity to praise God while I'm in my being living on this earth. Now, that reminds us of something very important. What is one of the primary reasons for your existence as a human being? to just worship God, to praise God, to live a life that gives praise to God and glorifies God. If you say, I have no idea why I exist, I don't know what my purpose is, what my function is, I have no sense of purpose, no aim, no goal, I'll give you one. 
live every day to glorify God and to try and bring praise to God through what you say, do, don't say, don't do, and inspire others around you to want to praise God because of how you live, you fulfill your existence. That's part of why you have your being. We're on this earth to give praise to God, to sing praises to God while we have our being. And then he says, verse 3, and don't put your trust, that is your reliance, your dependence, in princes. That would be the greatest of men, right? Those who have power, rulers, those who are political rulers, those who have the ability to make things happen, princes and those who sit on thrones. Don't put your trust in such. Nor in a son of man, that is any person, any human being per se, notice the Bible says, in whom there is no help. It's almost as if God just humbly reminds us, the greatest of human beings who seem like they have the power to exercise their authority to do anything for you. Hey, if you go talk to that person, I mean, that guy, he's a mover and a shaker. They can get something done for you. They can take, go see him. Go talk to the governor. Go talk to the president. Go talk, just go talk to that person. They, they have an angle. They can go talk to that person. They can help you in some way. God says, don't put your trust in those things. Don't put your trust in people, ultimately. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be trust, trusting of one another, but he's saying don't put your dependence on those things. Don't put your reliance upon the help of human beings, because verse 4, notice, they're, they're, they're weak. God says, for his, a person, spirit departs. At some point, every man does die. Their spirit may depart in death, but I'll tell you this, their spirit may depart even in being favorable towards you. Sometimes somebody's spirit departs in the sense of not that they've died, maybe just their spirit is no longer favorable towards you in the disposition within them anymore. So he says, a man's spirit departs, returns to the earth, he passes away, and in that day, all of his great plans to really help you out, they perish. <laughs> in that moment, the plans of any man all come to an end. We can have all kinds of plans, but the moment our life on earth is over, no matter what plan we were working or what we plan to do, all of a sudden it stops and comes to an end. So this is why God's saying, look, don't depend upon human beings. Don't put all your reliance in people Instead, verse 5, happy or blessed is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. And look, to be the God of Jacob means God helps people like Jacob. You remember what Jacob was like. What was Jacob's biggest issue? He was a conniver. He was a manipulator. Remember, he was a heel catcher. Jacob was notorious for always trying to work an angle, right? That was Jacob. Jacob was always trying to work an angle to get what he wanted to rob, cheat, steal, do whatever he had to do to make things work out best for Jacob. He was a manipulator. And God had to break Jacob of that and get Jacob fully dependent upon him. So he says, blessed is the one who becomes the God of Jacob, depends on the God of Jacob for his help. The idea is in contrast to looking to man for our help, whose hope, whose expectation is in the Lord his God. And why should our hope and expectation be in the Lord our God? who can help us, because notice verse 6, he's the one who did what? Made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. He's the creator God. He has all power. He controls everything. That's why we should hope and rely upon him to help us in our situation. He also is a God who executes justice for the oppressed, excuse me, verse 6, who keeps truth forever. And the idea of keeping truth forever, the Hebrew is literally 
who maintains reliability forever. So not only does God's truth not change, but the idea there of truth is his reliability, who he is and his loyalty and faithfulness that endures forever. God never changes. He never becomes different. He's a consistent God. He never alters. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he executes justice for the oppressed, that is those being oppressed and taken advantage of. God intervenes. He's willing to work on behalf of those who are being oppressed wrongfully. He gives food to the hungry, as we just saw in our last psalm. God's a supplier. He sees the need of people. He supplies the needs of those who are hungry and in need. He gives freedom to the prisoners. He's someone who wants to set people free from things that are keeping them enslaved. If they're imprisoned in something, and there are many things that imprison us as people. Some people are in in prison and shackles to some sin or life-dominating habit. Some people, it's their own emotions or their moods or their fear. There are all kinds of things that keep us imprisoned. But God notices a God of deliverance. He wants to give freedom to those who are prisoners. What are you held by? What are you imprisoned by? God wants to give freedom. That's his nature. That's the power that he has. And he opens the eyes, verse 8, of the blind. He gives people sight who aren't seeing correctly or can't see at all. He's in the business of opening eyes. Certainly we think of Jesus as we read all these things, opening the eyes of the blind. He raises those who are bowed down, as we talked about in our last psalm. He lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the righteous, those who do what's right. The Lord watches over strangers. That is, he he in a careful way watches over as an overseer those who are considered strangers, We would say those who are foreigners among the nation of Israel, those who are perceived or noticed as strange. God cares about people like that. He watches over such that are neglected or passed by by others. And he relieves the fatherless and the widow, the most vulnerable among the culture. He wants to relieve them of their burden and their hardships. But the way of the wicked, interesting, he turns upside down. So God relieves and helps those who are vulnerable and in deep need, and those who are proud and arrogant and rebellious, God just turns things upside down on them. The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. And everybody said, praise the Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray.